It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And uh, today... Uh, for the latest of our appendices, um, we are talking about Orson Welles's multiple uh, Moby Dick adaptations. Not counting the 1956 film that he appeared in, because we I mean, already we should, did that. We should talk about that briefly, but yeah, yeah it's sure, a previous we can, but We can mention it, but but he was an actor in that. He didn't really, he was not like the director, he didn't sure, write sure. the film. It wasn't his project, yeah. Um, and uh, the other three, th- the three things we're going to talk about today. Wait, 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 can I just say? We will be discussing Orson Welles. He's been saying this to me for weeks. It hasn't gotten any funnier. I, I beg to disagree. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Um, so uh, the three projects that we're talking about today are things that Orson Welles directed. I think you can. I think the word "directed" is accurate to all three of these projects, even though they are in different media. Yeah, I'd also say that it's kind of insufficient for i mean he directs and acts in all of them he's yes. uh he's obviously the sort of the mind behind them and in the last one he's basically the entire thing i mean that it is obvious that that's not the case because the last thing we're going to talk about is a film and there were cameramen that, that's and true i just mean that, that it's... but no you're totally right all three of these projects are like orson wells projects holy um, yeah. they, they, they center around Orson Welles. Orson Welles is the guy. <laughs> yeah. And a large part of why he's the guy is that he is always Ahab. Yes. He is Ahab in all three of these. Uh, he's Ahab not... is always and forever Ahab. And so is Orson Welles. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, <sighs> he's not solely Ahab. No, uh, no, no, But, but, uh, yes, that is true. He's Ahab. Um, and, uh. Yeah, so I guess let me just say what the three works are. Yeah. Um, First of all, uh, as one of the episodes of the Mercury Summer Theater of the Air, which is a radio drama series he uh, produced, directed, and starred in in 1946. Uh, So one of the episodes of that. And this is the... Is this the, the radio series... With this is not the radio series with War of the Worlds. Uh, no, that would just be uh, the Mercury Theater on the air, I believe. Though it's possible they, yeah, I don't think uh, War of the Worlds was included in this list. Uh, there is a King Lear, which is going to be interesting for for later uh, things. But no, it's um, I think there's thirteen, no, fifteen. Uh, total uh, Mercury Summer Theater of the Air episodes, of which Moby Dick is the thirteenth. Yes, it came out on August 30, 1946, and um, it uh, Orson Welles like, narrates it and is Ahab, 
and Ahab is like, I don't know, maybe 60, 70% of the text of that episode. <laughs> do we want to just cover the radio play and then go on to the next one? Or do we want to list all of them first? Uh, yeah, I, okay, I do want to at least just tell people what the two other yeah, things yeah. are. Go, go, but just... okay, so that's that's the radio play. Um, then the next thing is uh, Moby Dick Rehearsed, which is a play uh, that Orson Welles wrote and uh, directed and starred in. In 1955. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a film version of it, or there was. It's completely lost now. Uh, but there was an attempt to film it that uh, Wells abandoned. Yeah, the, he, he filmed that original production. And it's very sad that that seems to be just totally lost. Because uh, that original production included Christopher Lee and Patrick McGowan. Do we know who they played? Uh, yeah, well... Oh, right, there's that whole thing. We'll, we'll get into that later. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, cast, the cast list is a little... Uh, Complex. Yeah, but anyhow... Um, so there's that uh, play. There's also, by the way, another recorded version of it that, like, exists, but that I couldn't track down. It was produced for uh, Australian TV at some point. Um, mm-hmm. But that one didn't have Orson Welles in it. No, that was not an Orson Welles. Like, he didn't direct or act in that. It's just some other people putting Using on a play script. that Orson yeah. Welles wrote. I still would have been very interested to watch oh, it. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, uh, and then the third thing is that uh, in 1971, he filmed some parts of what might have been a film called Moby Dick. Uh, I think that's the most we need to say about it right now. <laughs> yes. But it's, it's fascinating. Yes. Uh, and we have a few little fragments of that. Some of them show up in, what was the documentary called? Uh, I, there's a documentary called One Man Band, um, which is basically all about like the last like couple decades of Orson Welles' life and, and uh, a lot of his sort of like unfinished projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Moby Dick is talked about in that documentary as part of that. Mm-hmm. And I watched the whole documentary. Um, ben did not. Uh, I just watched the bits with whales, sort yes. of. Uh, but anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, those are the, the the three Orson Welles Moby Dick projects that we wanted to talk yeah. about today. Uh, and so, I do think it is, you know, it's worth mentioning again, he did play Father Mapple in the 1956 Gregory Peck uh, Moby Dick. Yes. And I think that'll be interesting to discuss in the context of both Moby Dick, of, of the Moby Dick adaptations that come after it since uh, the 1946 radio play comes before it. Yes, yes, that's true. And and I think it's pretty clear that, I mean, this is not the only one of these. There were, like, many uh, great works of literature that Orson Welles was extremely yeah. interested in. Uh, but I think it's pretty clear that Moby Dick is something that he was consistently interested in like i would imagine the reason why he has that cameo in the 1956 movie yeah because he was excited about it. yeah he was into moby dick he wanted to do some moby dick stuff yeah and i think we have the the evidence that bears this out is the 1971 unfinished moby dick project thing is just it is a sign that this book weighed heavily on him and not just in the literal sense that it's a very large book Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so the radio play. Yes, and I said very large book because I want to say that the radio play is 30 minutes long. Yeah, this was kind of a funny thing uh, <laughs> because I had a little bit of a sense of like what Orson Welles' radio plays were. In my yeah. mind, I was like, ah, oh, it's probably an hour at most, right? And so I was like... I thought it was going to be the whole book. I thought it was going to be like eight hours. So I was like... I don't think we can listen to all of this for a podcast. Or at least I don't want to. Yeah, we had a little bit of an argument about it that was completely resolved (laughs) when I was like, Ben, it's a half hour long. We can listen to the whole thing. Yeah, no, and and we did. (laughs) Yeah. um, So as you might imagine, it's heavily abridged. Yes, it's, it's, 
I honestly do not think it would be possible to follow it if you had not read the novel, or at the very least, if you had not read, like, a synopsis of the novel. Yeah, I think it relies pretty heavily on the idea that you know basically what is going on with Moby Dick, but maybe also it's just there's a certain way of listening to radio plays that I am not particularly invested in that would make it easier to just track and go along with the more or less like sea adventure framing yeah yeah i suppose that's true if you were perfectly happy to just listen to orson wells do some dramatic speeches and not necessarily concern yourself too heavily with like wait a minute what exactly happened that led up to this speech uh then i can imagine that this this could go down pretty smooth yeah what it but like like Pabst Blue Ribbon, which it is sponsored by. <laughs> I, mm, I'm i not sure how I feel about saying that that goes down real smooth, but... What, the, the episode spo- or Pabst Blue Ribbon? Okay, no, it is Orson Welles getting to do a bunch of Ahab speeches, so it does go down smooth. I hugely enjoyed listening to it, even if at the end I was going, is, is that it? Is that, is that really all we get here? Which, <laughs> maybe that is similar to Pabst Blue Ribbon. We're not sponsored by Pabst Blue Ribbon, so I don't care to find out. Uh, yeah, it just, it, one of the things that I think was enjoyable about listening to this is just that we got to listen to a radio play from 1946, and yeah. it's very different from anything else I've ever listened to. I've never listened to a 1946 radio play before. Yeah, and much like The Sea Beast, it's a particular take on Moby Dick that has opened us to a new medium, but hasn't necessarily convinced me that that medium is amazing, at least as it's presented. Obviously, there are good silent films and good radio plays. I don't mean to dismiss it. I'm just saying that Orson Welles' personal charisma is really what's carrying that play. Yeah, I think that's kind of true. Um, yeah. And it's it's interesting, because he doesn't have certain parts of Ahab that I would consider to be crucial. And it is very much an Ahab story. It's stringing together a number of Ahab speeches or moments and... Uh, often making some very strange changes to make sure to fit in speeches that don't really have a place in the narrative. For example, um, so spoilers, Ahab dies. <laughs> um, but after Ahab's death, his ghost appears to Ishmael to deliver another speech. Yeah, I guess that's one way you could talk about it. it it's basically, um, I'm, I have the script open here. Um, I, oh, we should say the places where we actually got access to this sure sure uh so um indiana university bloomington has like an online um i guess i don't know what you would call it online uh, archive online archive of the mercury summer theater of the air yeah well i think it's more it's called orson wells on the air 1938 through 1946 so Mm -hmm. i think it's many different radio things he did but it includes it it has this recording and it has the script uh and they're both available online um but unfortunately they're not available for download, um, yeah. so you can only listen to the recording, like, streaming from this university website. Yeah, I think there are other places where this Well, right, so that's the thing. We tried to listen on the university website, and the recording was extremely quiet, and we had a hard time hearing it, so we had to go to a different website, uh, oldtimeradiodownloads.com. Which I'm assuming you can download it from. Yes, that website, I downloaded the file, and I was able to play it. A lot louder on mm. my computer um so yeah i mean uh clearly this recording is out of copyright you can just put it up for free online um uh in any case 
I, I just wanted to, you know, cite both of those places where we got mm-hmm. this. Um, but sure, sure. Th- this just means that I'm looking at the script right now, and I want I'm, I want to skip to the end. Uh, yeah, I mean, what do you... What happens is basically Ishmael's like, I can almost hear his voice. You know, that kind of sort of framing to allow a very spooky-sounding Orson Welles to deliver actually the um, the head of the Sphinx speech, which is uh, from relatively early in the book where Ahab is looking at the head of a right whale, I believe it's a right whale, suspended alongside the boat and thinking about the various, you know, secret darknesses that the whale has witnessed, but that he will never uh, be able to speak. And in the radio play, this is um, Ahab's ghost contemplating his own uh, tumbling down in the dark beneath. And so it it completely changes the context of the speech, but the language and somber energy are preserved. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a little bit of, like, uh, moving stuff around. I would say there's quite a bit of it. It's like... A lot of stuff gets recontextualized or reframed in order to fit into a narrative that doesn't have a lot of the curlicues and, you know, uh, sections that exist in the book. In fact, I'd say very little of the book's many, many digressions and plot directions continue to exist in the radio play. I mean, it's 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, something... So... Okay, yeah, this is, I've, I've managed to find, like, that last page uh, mm-hmm. where I, where what you described as uh, Ahab's ghost appears to Ishmael. Because, um, uh, you know, um, basically Ishmael narrates saying that the Pequod is drowned and only I, Ishmael, escaped to tell this tale. Uh, and Which then... is itself not quite a quotation. It's using the effort. Okay, <laughs> are you complaining about that? I'm complaining because the... I think that the Just Another Orphan line is stronger. That's fair. Anyway, but the point being, Ishmael communicates the important thing, right, about the ending, that the Pequot is gone and only Ishmael survives. And then he says, O Ahab, my captain, noble soul, still do you move before me in all your majesty, up from the spray of your ocean perishing into the unbodied air. So he he takes the, like... Section from Bulkington from the lee shore. And the, like, Ahab, still you move before me. That's also from a totally different section. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, two different pieces stitched together to make this moment of Ishmael remembering Ahab out of at least one part that was not about Ahab in the original novel. And then that... Uh, there's nothing that, like, explicitly says this is Ahab's ghost, but it is Ahab's voice happening after Ahab has died in the narrative, and there's, like, echoey noises. That is absolutely saying it's Ahab's ghost. So, yeah, I I think you're right. I just wanted to make it clear that there's no narration being like, and then Ahab's ghost appeared. Sure, sure. It's, Um, (laughs) It's probably not literally Ishmael has a vision of Ahab's ghost, but it is absolutely ghostly. Yes, and then it is, as you said, this, uh, this speech from the Sphinx, um slightly uh you know edited or cut down which is basically every uh speech that is taken from moby dick in all three of these adaptations is to some extent uh clipped yeah and that's that's inevitable i'm not complaining about that i am mildly complaining about some of the clips made some of the changes that orson welles saw fit for the speeches i do think that he has a a consistent sense of uh, aesthetics and style in what he um, what he chooses to collect. He's very interested in Ahab's psychology and Ahab's intensity, 
but he's less interested in Ahab's philosophy. Yes, and I think he's also really not interested in uh, the psychology of any of the other characters. Oh, yeah, no. Um, like, uh, he, uh, something that I find very striking is that... So, okay, perhaps this isn't too shocking in the radio play, because yeah. it's, like, for a commercial audience. Um, but also in the other two adaptations, the suicidality that to me underlines the opening underlines loomings uh-huh. is removed but loomings is retained Kept in some form. i, I yeah. think loomings is in all three of these i, I certainly I think call so. me i'm pretty sure call me ishmael is in all three uh yeah i think so i yes i i believe it call me ishmael's in all three and there is there's a little <clears throat> bit of the, you know, of the looming's energy um, of, you know, whenever it's a damp November in my soul. Yes, so so it's not like the elements of that opening of the novel that are about kind of like seeking the sea out of melancholy. Those are there. So I, I don't think it's fair to say that these works are totally disinterested in Ishmael as a character, but... Um, the funerary references. Yeah, like the... The explicit suicidality. Yes, and and uh, you know, I think what kind of goes along with that is a sense of a sense of Ishmael as someone other than a narrator and a witness. Mm, yeah, um, no, I th- I think you're right that Ishmael is very much just a witness in more or less all of these works. I think that there's a a little bit more in Moby Dick rehearsed, but that might also just be coming from his actor. Yeah, yeah, that's that's possible. Yeah, um, he's definitely a very like. Nicely voiced, but very kind of bland narrator in uh, the radio play. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I'm trying to think if there anything else I really wanted to reference in the radio play. Because I think that of these three, I'm happy saying this is the most minor. Yeah, like the, this is a, this, I genuinely think it's fun to listen to. Um, So I, and I would recommend just going and looking it up and spending a half hour listening yeah, to it. Yeah, just put it on in the background. Yeah, um, uh, like, one thing that is, Ben and I are strongly of the opinion that listening to dramatic selections from Moby Dick is a fun thing to do, and that's why we've subjected you to that, repeatedly. Um, uh, yeah. I, uh, honestly, when I was listening to this, I felt a real sense of kinship with Orson Welles, because if I was writing, directing, and producing a radio play series, this is exactly what I would do. I would just select out my favorite cool Ahab speeches and read them and get enough other people doing, you know, whatever, Ishmael, Starbuck, to just uh, make other people capable of comprehending. Like, give give a little bit of scaffolding to just, like, okay. me showboating. But... I want to point out, you say that, but also, when you got the chance to do the musket speech, well, okay. you leaped on that. That's actually true. If... I mean, this is one of, we've already kind of said, if we were the ones choosing which bits of Moby Dick we think are the coolest to show off, we wouldn't make the same choices as Orson Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't be only the Ahab show. Yes, I I do think that uh, Wells's, I think, like, pretty singular interest in Ahab that we've already mentioned is Mm -hmm. uh, not something that you and I share with him. No, I, Ahab is certainly... The character who has the most speeches that I would personally love to shout or whatever. But I do think that, on some level, making it the Ahab show is a very particular take on Moby Dick, even though he is the central character. And I think it is very much the sort of 
standard take on Moby Dick. It's the thing that happens in the Gregory Peck movie, to some extent, though that's more the Starbucks show. But uh, the idea that Ahab is the protagonist, the central character, the tragic protagonist, but still the thing around which everything else revolves, being taken to the point of everyone else basically fading into the background in the radio play for Ahab, you know, giving his speeches, and then Ishmael reporting his speeches. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think, yeah. I I think that particularly in an adaptation like this radio play, yeah. that in order to be a half an hour long, <laughs> yeah. it's going to have to be such a tiny sliver of what the book is oh, about. Oh, no, absolutely. I don't... I, I don't think it's unreasonable to basically be like, you know what? Most of what this book is about is Ahab. So let's give you a radio play that is just like my conception of Ahab's greatest hits. Yes. And again, I think there's some really great hits. And, you know, it's Orson Welles doing an Ahab voice. That's fantastic. Yeah. So in no way am I complaining about the radio play we got. Uh, For a 30-minute radio play of Moby Dick, it does an admirable job. I just don't necessarily agree with all the decisions within, you know, Ahab being the singular uh, element in it. Also, some of the changes that I think are just sort of a time necessity include things like there's only ever one lowering for a whale in this sort of adaptation. Yeah. They only lower when they go to face Moby Dick. And I think that changes the work somewhat. Secondly, um, I think that the fact that the quarterdeck speech keeps losing the little lower layer and becoming much more straightforwardly about uh, Ahab's egotism than his, like, conception of the world is a particular take on Ahab that is not mine. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, I do... I'm, I'm just flipping through the script now because I could I could have sworn there was a part of the, uh, of the quarterdeck speech in the radio play where he, like spoke directly to starbuck i think there is but i think it's the bit where he talks about i'd strike the sun if it insulted me not uh hark ye to the little lower layer yeah i see yes yeah. so so he you... might have said the pasteboard masks line but i don't remember it okay so uh, i i was misunderstood you have like a very there's basically like two sentences there's that a you're few, upset two about sentences that out. i think cutting them significantly reduces the speech you know, not entirely. A lot of the language is still there. If there's one thing that's very clear from all of these that Orson Welles is really in love with, it's Melville's language. It's yes. the way he assembles words. And, you know, the fact that sometimes he's less interested in what I consider to be the import of those words than the, like, effect of them, I think that's perfectly reasonable for a theatrical uh, version. Yeah, I feel like this is something that I got out of watching One Man Band, which includes just a lot of clips of, like, interviews with Orson Welles and, and like, him, like, having Q&As and stuff like that. So just, mm-hmm. like, Orson Welles talking to an audience in, like, the last couple decades of his life. Orson Welles, Orsoning Wellesley. Yeah, and, like, look, he makes a lot of very broad, like, <laughs> philosophical statements about life about mm-hmm. art, about the film industry. And I'm not saying that he didn't on some level have have real beliefs about these things. And I'm not really saying that he was lying. But it does really feel like... <laughs> Amazing introduction. It does really feel like he did just kind of say whatever the fuck he wanted to say. And I'm not sure that all of it collectively forms like a consistent body of beliefs. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about... Um, I don't know, there's just one bit in the um 
in the documentary that, that I think you saw because it was like slightly after one of the yes. Moby yeah. Dick clips where he talks about how he is a pessimist, but that he has a natural inclination, a sort of foolish inclination to hope. And he believes in bravery. Uh, and I, I guess I believe all of that is true, but like, what the fuck does he mean by that? I don't know. Oh. And uh, so I don't know that he necessarily... Um, cared that much about Ahab's philosophical uh well no it's just that I don't know what exactly he was getting out of it yeah that's that's fair I do not know what kind of reader of Moby Dick or suppose I have some theories on that that we can we can get to but I think that shows up much more in the unfinished Moby Dick of 1971 than in this radio play yeah yeah um and I don't know do we have anything else to say about the radio play uh, no I feel do we want to mention any of the other people who are in it there's they're not very in it. Yeah, I mean, we just have uh, on, you know, the, um, the Wikipedia, Wikipedia article for, about yeah. uh, this um, production. Uh, it lists other members of the cast, although I'm not sure only, who played what. Yeah, no, only Wells is actually listed with a, with a role as Ahab. The rest, uh, William Allen, Byron Kane, John Brown, Earl Ross, and Elliot Reed are just listed. Yeah. Maybe we could dig into that further, but frankly, I don't think it's a good use of our time on the podcast. Yeah, it, it also, Wikipedia cites it to a book, so we would have had to get mm, a book from yeah. the library just to look up the cast list. And I don't It might care not enough. have even had the cast list by the I characters. I don't care even a little enough. Yeah, no, it seems like a, doesn't seem like a reasonable thing to do with our time. Yep. Um, cool. So, is that the radio play of 1946? Yeah, I think so. Let's, uh, cool. let's move well, on to... Let's briefly stop over. He plays Father Mapple in the pack vehicle. I just want to mention that because from this point on, the father in Moby Dick rehearsed the whole father Mapple speech is reproduced like the entire thing. Yeah. I, I haven't, uh, I, I, I sort of meant to, and I didn't actually bother to do this. I'm curious whether the, cause you say the whole father Mapple speech, sure, it's sure. not the whole fucking chapter. Okay. But it's a significant portion of it what is. Mapple actually says. The thing that I'm curious about is both the 1956 film and the script for Moby Dick rehearsed, reproduce large chunks of the Father Mapple speech. Yeah, his sermon. And in both of these, that sermon was given by Orson Welles playing Father Mapple. Mm -hmm. And so the thing I'm curious about is whether there are any differences in the parts of the speech yeah, that no, the two versions uh, used. But I didn't uh, bother to go get the script for uh, yeah. the Moby Dick 1956 film. That's very um, reasonable. Also, I'll be honest, my sense of it is that uh, it felt very similar. It felt like it was touching on the same basic uh, description of the Jonah story. And also, um, honestly, just focuses in on that sort of... Uh, exhortation to you know uh against the proud gods and commodores of this earth stands forth his own inexorable self and that final line uh yet this is nothing i leave eternity to thee for what is man that he should live out the lifetime of his god you know the really powerful moments in the speech uh yeah. just linguistically and you know the, the jonah story is fun it is definitely i think the longest speech in moby dick rehearsed uh, even Ahab's speeches are broken up and separated more than that one long sermon. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, I just think that's interesting. And it's clear that, uh, or at least I think it's clear that Wells has a certain degree of uh, um, just affection for the sermon. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's, uh, that's clearly the case. 
Um, something I'm trying to double check. Does the, uh... What? Okay, yes. No, absolutely. Uh, I was trying to remember because I think that sometimes, uh... I think that it is... You know, I guess this isn't actually a thing that any adaptation we've seen has done. It's just something that I assumed that adaptations would do, which is to cut the part of Father Mapple's speech, cut the turn where he, he makes the story of Jonah not just a moral lesson for his parishioners, but a moral lesson specifically for uh, the priest or the, the um, you know, the preacher. Yeah. Um, like, because I guess in my mind, it's like, if you were making an adaptation of Moby Dick the way I would, the Father Mapple speech would not be hugely significant. And therefore, you might be looking for a way to cut out about half of it. <laughs> yeah, but you have Orson Welles reading it. <laughs> yes, so yeah, no. Both both the both Moby Dick rehearsed and the 1956 script, which I did manage to just look up right now, have like the whole delight is to him thing. Yeah. Um, I think that the important part is that I is that this sermon is I mean, on some level I don't think it matters that much the narrative. It is interesting. It is well written. It has connections to things, but ultimately I don't think that the Christian perspective on the overarching sort of story of Moby Dick, the events of Ahab's life, is represented by Matt particularly, but it is verbal pyrotechnics. It is, yeah. like, really good as a speech. It's it's definitely, like, it's rhetorically satisfying. I think maybe part of what's going on in the novel with the, mm-hmm. the sermon is, pr- like, presenting, like, the kind of, Christian, Nantucketer, yeah, conventional understanding of what whaling is and what the relationship between, like, contemplation of God and whaling might be. Mm-hmm. And then that perspective is, like, left behind as soon as the Pequod leaves port. Yeah, I, I remember that when we were reading this, you found that sermon much more immediately compelling and of interest uh, than I did. Um, where I was like, I think it's intentionally kind of flawed in the way that, you know, we have, uh, you know, cannibalism as the, in this case, the sort of general concept of, of, of a pagan perspective that is, you know, so constantly present in the book, juxtaposed against uh, the sermon. And your position was, well, obviously the sermon is being uh, raised up, and I was more skeptical. <laughs> and I think part of that was just that I'd read the book before, so I yep. knew how much that sermon was just going to get left in the wake. Yeah, no, I I think that makes sense as a as a sort of explanation for how we related to that sermon at the time. Um, like, I definitely did have the feeling when I was first reading the book that there's something programmatic happening here. That this mm-hmm. sermon was going to... Lay out the model? Yeah, that it was going to present some kind of set of, like, philosophical and moral and theological ideas that would then be followed through on in the novel. Because, I mean, I think that's a... I think novels often do that, <laughs> yeah. right? That yeah, they, yeah. they have someone present some ideas early in the novel, uh, especially, you know, in a 19th century novel, they yeah, might yeah. have someone turn to camera and give you a camera. Literally give a sermon. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's not what Moby Dick does with that sermon <laughs> at yeah, all. Yeah. Um, and, and so that expectation that I had was kind of betrayed or not betrayed, but, but, but I, I had an expectation and then the yeah. novel didn't follow through on it. Yeah. And I think that might also be why Wells, why the 56 movie repeatedly have the father Mapple speech is because it has that sort of generic and obvious place within the work. Uh, generic in the sense of being of genre, not in the sense of like being standard. Mm-hmm. And, Frankly, I think that 
it's just an interesting and fun speech to give, which means that you're even more likely to keep it. But I don't think that it has a particular vantage on what's going on in, say, Moby Dick Rehearsed. Which, speaking of which, Moby Dick Rehearsed. So, Moby Dick Rehearsed, it's a play. Uh, Orson Welles wrote it, and he directed the original production, and he starred in the original production as uh, the governor slash Ahab. So we should explain what the story actually is. Yeah, so the story of Moby Dick Rehearsed is very straightforward. There's a number of actors in a theater who are uh, in the process of preparing to put on King Lear, and they get given a script and are told, hey, we're going to do a reading of a play version of Moby Dick. And then they do that. And it's similar to, not identical to, but pretty similar to Orson Welles' radio play version. And they play, except with more characters, they play it out, and that's it. That's the story. Yeah, it doesn't even return to the frame narrative at the end. Which it I... does very briefly. Well, like, okay. Like, literally one line yes, briefly. The, uh, yes, because, yes. I think it's important. No, you're right. It is something. Because, yeah, so the so all of the roles in the, in the play are, in some sense, double roles. Because yes. you have people, be- at the beginning of the play, everyone comes in and is playing these various actors, members of the company. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then it goes on, and all of those people play characters in Moby Dick. But, um... The script is incredibly unclear about oh, the correspondences yeah, the version... between those because it just when when um you know when for example uh, the uh, Ishmael character is is speaking in the part of the play that actually is Moby Dick it just says Ishmael, Ishmael. colon yeah. it doesn't say like uh, young actor as Ishmael um and it yeah. is made somewhat clear so like the. There's dialogue early on where people are getting their parts and discussing who they're playing and asking for direction in terms of, like, so how should I be playing this character? And in theory, you could go through the parts and see, like, okay, this person is told they're playing Peleg. This, you know, the young actor is obviously playing Ishmael and is said as much. In fact, in the Dramatis Personae for the version of the play I've got here physically, it does say, young actor, later Ishmael, but nobody else... Yeah, so we so well, almost nobody else. So the I stage wanna, manager. I want to talk about the way that the casts are described because okay, the script that Ben and I have is something we got out of his university library. Um, yep. And so this. Uh, is, do you mind if I read the front cover? I no, go for it. Go for it. Moby Dick rehearsed a drama in two acts by Orson Welles, being an adaptation for the most part in blank verse of the novel by Herman Melville. And I just think the phrase being an adaptation for the most part in blank verse of the novel by Herman Melville is charming. It is. Uh, But I think we should mention that this script is not, like, this is not a script that was printed up for the original production that Orson Welles directed. Um, The copyright on the copyright page of this is 1965. Yes. So a decade later. And this is the first, the first page with the Dramatis Personae gives a cast for the, the play as pre- as presented at the Ethel Barrymore Theater. Um, so this is a, you know, a later production. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the cast of people who presented it for the first time on Broadway um, in New York in 1962. Um, and uh, Wikipedia has a cast right, list for both thing. the original Orson Welles production, Orson Welles directed production in 1955 in London, and it has a cast list for this production, 1962 in New York. Um, although I guess it's also possible that the version we have is for a later production where one role was switched out. 
Anyway, the point being, okay, the print version, it cites all the actors as the actor roles, right? So it says, like, Yeah, a serious actor, cynical actor, a member of the company, another member of the company, a middle-aged actor, an old pro, in quotation marks, young actress, etc. Yes, um... And uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about that, by the way, is that the Dramatis Personae refers to the actor manager. And I don't actually think the script ever names anybody that. It names someone called the governor. And then he arrives and is clearly the manager of the actors. (laughs) But you don't know that he's the actor manager. I think it's maybe just mentioned in dialogue. And then that same guy goes on to play Ahab. That's not mentioned at all in the first page we have. Anyway, um... Yeah, frankly, the, um... These are very confusing dramatis personae. Yeah, I think there are multiple characters who are just described as a member of the yes, company. Yes, there's two right? of them. They aren't specified in any way. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the Wikipedia list does tell you b- both roles. Um, but the way that the roles match up in the two different cast lists on Wikipedia is not the same. And doesn't quite seem to me to match up with what is said in the printed version of the script that we have. Uh, so I have some, for example, some confusion about who plays Peleg. Um, uh, I believe the serious actor is told he's playing Peleg, but the listing is incorrect for that. Yeah, so so in the in the script, the guy who is na- only named as a serious actor is told he's going to play Peleg. Yeah, he, he asks about Peleg. Yes. In the London cast list on Wikipedia... Um, Kenneth Williams is listed as playing a very serious act. Actually, okay, there's Patrick McGowan who plays a serious actor slash Starbuck. And then there's Kenneth Williams who plays a very serious actor and Elijah and others. And then there's Jefferson Clifford who plays an experienced actor and Peleg. And I think that has to be the old pro because there's no old pro mentioned in the London cast list. So I can only imagine experienced actor is the... That, that makes guy. sense to me. Um, and then the Wikipedia listing of the New York cast says that um, says that William Needles, playing the stage manager and the voice of the Rachel, also plays Peleg. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah, it's all very confusing. We Who have, was Peleg? Yeah, fundamentally, it doesn't really matter to the way we're encountering the text, but it is fascinating that this... Uh, the sort of metafictional conceit also makes it really hard to figure out who did what. And, like, I don't think that that is, in a certain sense, unintentional. Like, you could have, there, you could totally have a version of this play where the dramatis personae lays out which role plays which role. You could have that be evident in the stage direction and in the, the names of, like, the yeah, characters yeah. saying the lines. But... I think Wells was kind of interested in creating a certain sense of chaos. <laughs> it's entirely possible. I I just also think that it may be organic chaos. That's true. It may be the case that it was just like, if if you saw this performed... Yeah, it wouldn't you would, be a question. You would obviously see, you know, the person who had been asking about playing Peleg go on to say the Peleg lines. Yeah, yeah. And it wouldn't yeah. confuse you at all. But I will it, say that... I think the the main issue would be if you're trying to put this on, you'd have to do a lot of your own internal casting and recasting to make sure that everyone's lines work out. Yes, and and I also think like based on how the script describes what the play looks like. Yeah. Um, like it might even be worth reading some of the stage direction. Do you mind sure. if I? Sure. Um, just the part where it says uh about like 
um, about like how the actors appear. Uh, an American theater at the end of the last century. Theaters are often cold during rehearsals, and the actors do not shed their long, dark overcoats, except when the action or the parts they are playing would seem to demand shirt sleeves. No stage properties are used. So the the first thing in the script is yes. this description of the scene that makes it clear that there's really no costuming or uh, props or anything like that. Ahem, ahem. It would not be true to say that there is no scenery. The stage is not bare. It is interestingly even romantically dressed with all the lumber of an old-fashioned theater. Well, yes. Yeah. So so there is there is lots there is um a set, but the set is just telling you that this is a theater. Yes, it there's is no not... Moby Dick props. And and I think that in particular for me the thing that stands out is the specification that the actors are just all wearing long dark overcoats and they might yeah. take them off sometimes but like everyone is basically wearing totally indistinct costumes and also most of the characters are never named right like yeah. they they're not even named like the 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 role is like a serious actor this is just in the script nobody's calling that guy a serious actor and yeah. so unless you were great at remembering the faces of actors, I think it would genuinely be hard to tell sometimes who was playing which part. Because they'd all be costumed the same, and sometimes some of them would be taking off their coats or putting them back on, and there'd be no... Like, there would be a lot... Of, it sounds like there are also a fair number of moments in the script where kind of, like, all the sailors come together and do a thing as, like, a... Um, a collective. As a company. Yeah. You know? And, and so I think there would be times when, like, the guy who was playing Starbuck disappears into the mass of sailors, and then he comes out again and is Starbuck again, and you wouldn't necessarily have a sense of continuity of that guy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that... I think that the... Uh... The presentation of the of the various actors does give them a certain amount of like personality. Yes. So I, you're expected, I think, to follow which personality is being assigned which role to some extent. Yes. Um, but I think that it is an interesting sort of metafictional challenge to the uh, to the actors to play both, you know, a serious actor and also, say, Peleg, where you have to be playing a person playing a part. Yes. And like playing a part that they're just rehearsing for like the first time they're learning their parts as they go yeah yeah um definitely like it's a it's a fascinating like question of acting and i would have loved to see it like actually interpreted by anyone yeah yeah um and uh we shall have to do our interpretations ourselves yeah um and and uh i i also uh i definitely think there's kind of an element going on here where um as they are introduced as actors, the the characters have kind of like uh, archetypal personalities that in some sense are appropriate or at times kind of purposefully inappropriate to the roles they're cast in. Yes. So, for example, the governor slash the actor manager who plays Ahab is this like... I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to read it. Do it. Read it. The governor, in his late sixties, with a noble mane of silver hair, is the classic actor-manager of the old school. His inverness is high-buttoned of such a somber black as to be almost clerical. Until the rehearsal begins, his face is shadowed by a broad-brimmed hat. He carries a stick, which he now suddenly raises, pointing it at the young actress. So, Orson Welles. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> admittedly, Orson Welles wasn't in his late sixties at the time, but, like, 
I think he, he was in his... himself. Yeah, no, he, 100%, this guy is like an Orson Welles guy. He's, he's playing the role of the sort of uh, intense director, like... Eminence Grise, like whatever he's he's yeah. doing that he Wells is playing with his own reputation. Yes, and also I think it's interesting. So I mentioned before that King Lear shows up in the list of in the same list of uh, adaptations for Mercury Summer Theater of the Air as Moby Dick, like two episodes later. And the uh, company in this is uh, in the middle of preparing a uh, version of King Lear. And in fact, there's a brief section where, uh, in fact, right after this, where the governor ha- uh, just comes in with one of Lear's lines, and the young actress who plays Cordelia in their Lear um, has to uh, follow up and respond to it. So we get this little chunk of uh, Shakespeare's Lear in the middle of this section. Um, and And it's also like... It's a it's a little like window into what this guy's directing style is yes, like. Yes, yes. Um, where he's just kind of he's playing the role of Lear, but as he's doing that, he's also telling his Cordelia how she should do Cordelia. Yes, and he's giving the stage directions. In fact, it's it's in the in the stage directions for Moby Dick rehearsed is he makes the transition from Shakespeare to stage directions without a pause for breath. Okay, I do think, okay, we talked about whether we could read anything from this and, like, eventually kind of concluded that it would be a mess. Like, we had the idea of It would be difficult, yeah. Yeah, but we could read this exchange, and I think it would be, like, funny and also an an example of what we're talking about. Do you want to do that? Sure. Who, which side do you want? I, uh, Do you want to do Orson Welles? I, I kind of do, but I think this is another one of those situations where I'd be happy flipping a coin. I wouldn't be unhappy voicing the young actress. Okay. Uh, uh, do you have a coin? Uh, if we don't have a coin... Rock, paper, scissors? Yeah, Winners sure. Orson Welles? Yeah, sure. All right. Oh, no, sorry. it's rock, paper, scissors, shoot, Ben. <laughs> I can't believe this is on air. Okay. All right. Yeah. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. Rock, paper, scissors, shoot. shoot. No, rock, rock paper, paper, scissors, shoot. All right, okay. I win. <laughs> this is so dumb. <laughs> we can cut this if we want. That would be dishonest. Uh, uh, listeners, I think I should tell you. First it was scissors, scissors. Then it was rock, rock. Then I won with rock over scissors. Yes. We have the same brain. <laughs> we do not have the same <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. There so, are two people on this podcast. Uh, do, also, do you do you want to do the stage directions? Uh, Just so, I mean, I, I think it says that uh, he makes the transition from Shakespeare to stage directions <laughs> without a pause for breath. Okay, all right, fine. If you want me to do that, I'll do it. Um, uh, the governor. Why not? Tum-de-tum, tum-de-tum. On I come, and they love it. Murmurs of, hello, governor. The seated actors rise. The governor, in his late sixties and with a noble mane of silver hair, is the classic actor-manager of the old school. His inverness is high-buttoned and of such a somber black as to be almost clerical. Until the rehearsal begins, his face is shadowed by a broad-brimmed hat. He carries a stick, which he now suddenly raises, pointing it at the young actress. How now, Cordelia? Mend your speech a little, lest it may mar your fortunes. Three steps down, right, and bow. He makes the transition from Shakespeare to stage directions without a pause for breath. Good, my lord. Bow, dear, bow. Don't duck. He sits in the throne. You have begot me, bred me, loved me. 
Stand up to me. I return those duties back as our fit, right fit. Obey you. Last night, you sounded like a parlor maid who's broken a teacup. A slight note of asperity creeping into the reading. Obey you, love you, and most honor you. Why have my sisters, husbands... Look to Goneril left, speech, speech. Look to Regan right, on Mary like my sisters, to love my father all. But goes thy heart with this? Aye, good my lord. So young and so untender? Chin up, eyes flashing. So young, my lord, and true. Rising. Let it be so, thy truth then be thy dower. Here I disclaim all my paternal care. Propinquity and property of blood. Falls your knees on blood, dear. And as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. The barbarous Scythian, you take that downstage, my dear. Or he that makes his generation messes to gorge his appetite. Shall to my bosom, well downstage, dear, with your back to the audience. Very bad for you, very good for me. Speech, speech, pitied and relieved as though my sometime daughter. The serious actor as Kent. Good my liege. Quietly businesslike. Strike the throne. Uh, oh, we're not going on? So, I really like how he goes through this whole speech, and then someone else starts to come, and he's like, strike the throne, you know, take it down, we're moving on to this other thing. It almost comes across like all he really wanted to do was to be Lear, kind of bullying... Cordelia. Uh, Cordelia, and there was this young woman around who well, he had... Well, she's also, she is his Cordelia in the Lear. Right, she is his Cordelia in the Lear, but she's also, like, you know... He's this uh, actor-manager of yes, the old yes, school, yes. and she's his, like, young ingenue. So, like, he's got a kind of fatherly relationship toward her. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, immediately he's, um, you know, uh, immediately going on to Moby Dick. Today we're running through the new piece, and he has this interaction with the uh, serious actor who wants, like, direction as to how to play the part and the governor's just completely steamrolling with him with like you know you've memorized it i'm sure you're a professional yeah yeah oh also he acquires brandy yes. and a cigar yes yes <sighs> he also has god the bit where he's just like uh briefly to the young actresses and aside he's like we'll try to squeeze in the tent scene my dear sometime later you really mustn't sob aloud you know all through my we too like birds in the cage it's distracting <laughs> Yeah, he's definitely being kind of mean to her. Oh, yeah, no. The the governor is a force of nature in this. He <laughs> shows up and then is, you know, wants to do the Lear. And then he's like, also, I'm going to do Ahab. It's this new thing we're doing. And this is where we get, I think, the meat of the metafiction uh, for, the, for uh, Moby Dick rehearsed. Is that you go into this uh, discussion of whether it is possible to do Moby Dick on stage. And, like, Lear is being used as the counterpart, the, like, the obvious great play, the thing that is inherently theatrical. Yes. Um, for example, you have the cynical actor who explicitly says, uh, well, at least King Lear was meant to be acted. This whale business was intended to be read. Um, and you've got this skepticism among the company of whether it is possible to do Moby Dick justice in this form. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, one of the things that comes up around this, by the way, is the question of how they are possibly going to represent Moby Dick, yes, the whale, yes. on stage. Um, and there's some there's some exchanges about that that I think are very funny. First of all, just that they're kind of funny in themselves. Yeah. But also they're so funny because there is a stage production of Moby Dick where they made a whale and put it on well, the stage. Well, we don't know about whether they made a whale. We know they made the ship. I don't know if they have the whale. We haven't gotten a chance to see it. We could look into it, but the 2019 musical Moby Dick is, yes, this 
huge overstatement. And I'll be honest, I was waiting for after we got through this discussion to bring that up because I thought it'd be a funny punchline. Oh, so- sorry. But it's it- fine. Uh, but the um, the specific line that I think is great, which is uh, the cynical actor gets, I think, all the best lines in this section. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, um, just as a point of information, Laddie, have you led the governor to believe we can deliver him a shipwreck, a typhoon, and a great white whale in this theater at a $2 top? And the young actress, Cordelia, is like, a white whale? The title role, my dear. One might have expected the governor to be playing Moby Dick himself, but no, I understand he's to be invisible throughout. The whale, that is, not the governor. Yes, uh, and, and I think that, like, okay, so even though the uh, the stage musical, we don't know for sure whether they made a Moby Dick and put that on stage, although, yeah. God, I hope they did, but I, I can imagine that there's a certain issue of scale. yes. That, that if they did make a whale, they must It would have... be smaller than the ship, necessarily, because the play takes place... The, the musical takes place on the ship. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like, based on what we've heard about the type of visual spectacle that play was going for, they must have had some representation of the whale. But maybe it's yeah. like... We keep calling it a play, but it's a musical, and I think that's very important. That's true. But a musical... A musical is a type of play, I believe. Uh, oh, okay. But anyway, I think the musical probably... I, what I'm imagining is that they must have had some kind of, like, prop puppet thing that was, like, the head of the whale. Or they had, like, a shadow projection. Or there's a lot of different ways you could do something like that, which is extremely unrelated to this intentionally bare bones. Like, you t- talked about costuming, how there is none. And there are no props. There are no harpoons or whale boats or anything. And it's intentionally, like... I think engaging with that it's discussed by the actors whether you can have a whale on the stage and whether it is possible to do it without one yeah i mean i do think that uh it's hard to say because clearly clearly orson wells's play is intended to be put on with with very little in the way of props but it's not clear to me whether the moby dick that this company is putting together is going to be put on without any harpoons. Well, I don't think it's going to be put on at all. Well, okay, that's true. Yeah, like, that's <laughs> that's an important part of this, which is, this is a test run. This is a rehearsal. And they're not necessarily going to produce Moby Dick for an audience in the end. And there's a lot of discussion of the role of the audience, even, during this first section. Like I said, this is where all the metafiction is. And I think it's really dense. It's almost like uh, a Tom Stoppard play, in terms yeah. of its uh, rapidity and intensity of this. I do really love that the old pro does say of course it's invisible my god how could you put a thing like that on the stage just flatly stating it right yeah but but i think that it is an interesting question of like you know the cynical actor has this kind of presumption of like well if there's a big thing in the book we're gonna have to physically put it on the stage somehow yeah well Um, the cynical actor's position is that the audience isn't going to see the whale and the young actor who is obviously the idealist actor he's also ishmael he um he opens the play by starting with ishmael's like uh looming speech which i think is a really charming thing so the first line of moby dick rehearsed is call me ishmael and they go through that opening section that i think Wells is assuming people will recognize, mm-hmm. and then it goes back to this discussion within the um, within the uh, within the theater between the actors. Uh, there's a very fun note that uh, the actors are all arriving during this speech that he's rehearsing to the empty room, and they're all just completely ignoring him, smoking, chatting, and there's even like a rumble of thunder because someone dropped the thunder sheet yes. in the background, and this gets completely ignored. So you get this sense of the. 
the capacity for the actors to exist within the world of the play without interacting with it if necessary. Yeah. The, the professionalism. Yeah. Um, I, something that I don't really know a ton about, but that I think is interesting to at least bring up. Mm-hmm. So the, the, you know, the opening scene information makes it clear that this is, I think it says that this is a theater group at the end of the last century, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So this is, you know, the late... Late uh, Victorian. Late Victorian period, yeah. Um, well, it, it's probably supposed to be an American group, right? Sure, so, sure. So like Gilded Age. Yeah. Anyway, um... Which, first of all, that's interesting in terms of the reception of Moby Dick. Because the way that the actors are talking about Moby Dick, they seem to think of it as a famous novel. Yeah, which Um, was not the case in the uh, 1890s in the U.S. or anywhere. Yeah, Um, so it sort of feels like uh, Wells is projecting the kind of great American novel status of Moby Dick back in time. I definitely think that's true. But anyhow, that aside, um, I I, I am curious whether the idea of a stage production where most of the kind of props and setting and and costuming is sort of abstract and gestured at, I think that might have been pretty experimental at that point. In particular... In particular, something that doesn't get... I don't think anybody actually explicitly talks about costuming Mm -hmm. in the script. Um, I think that putting on a stage play version of Moby Dick in which all of the actors are just wearing overcoats that they sometimes take off and sometimes put back mm-hmm. on, but are not wearing, like, sailor's outfits at all. Sure, sure. I think that would have been a very weird thing to do in, like, 1890. I think that's true, but this is just the rehearsal. There's the yes. implication that they would have props if they went ahead with it. That's kind of what I'm saying, is that this yeah. sort of... Uh, this sort of abstractness, this gesturing at Moby Dick, yeah. as, like... I think there's almost an argument in the way that this play is constructed that it is somehow truer to Moby Dick the novel to have a play in which you're not doing a bunch of, like, period costumes and, like, visual Hmm. representations of sea business. I think that this play is kind of arguing that to put on Moby Dick on the stage, you would have to be kind of abstract about it. I think that's an element. There's, uh, you know, another of the Lear connections is that the young actor responding to the idea of the invisible whale is, the white whale is like the storm in Lear. It's real, but it's more than real. It's an idea in the mind. And the cynical actor's response is, it's an idea in your mind, old boy. And then I think that's really crucial because we go on to discuss, um, you know, questions of, is this an actable play? Is this a functional play? Is it just a novel that's been like, I mean, you know, literally has its lines cut up and repasted into parts for you to speak, which is literally what's going on here. Yeah, I, I, I kind of want to talk about the yeah. way the lines are structured, but I don't want to stop you from your point just oh, now. So it goes on to, uh, I think, one of the very fun moments with the governor is um, where... Uh, First of all, the young actor, his problem is that he's university educated and the old pro and the cynic are uh, very down on this, you know, God deliver the theater from educated actors. And the serious actor, who I think is maybe more educated than the cynical actor, says, because they're always trying to educate the public, you mean. Well, and he's clearly, you know, proposing that as like, well, we're doing this to educate the public. The public isn't prepared for Lear or Moby Dick, but we'll still put it on and make them like it. And the uh, the governor roars out, impertinence! We are the servants of the public! Just that, servants! My god, gentlemen, how would you like to have to listen to uplifting lectures from your cook? Yeah, the, the question of, like, what the what play... 
what actors should be doing to their audiences. And, and there's a line, I think the governor at some point, I think it's him, says something yeah, about, yeah. like, have you ever heard of an unemployed audience? Yes. Basically, <laughs> he's basically saying, like... With they, the, the, that line, do you want to read it? Starting uh, yeah. Um, with massive deliberation. Yeah, so it's the cynical actor under his breath. Ask any unemployed actor, the young actor with a grin. And when the audience decides it doesn't need us, the governor with massive deliberation. The audience? Boy, they never need us. Nobody ever needed the theater at all, except the people up on the stage. Did you ever hear of an unemployed audience? And I think that is absolutely one of those moments where I think, when I mentioned the idea that Orson Welles would just say things, <laughs> like broad philosophical statements about art. Sure, sure, sure. Like, I think that thing about, like, oh, uh, the audience doesn't need the actors. The actors need the audience. Like... That sounds like the kind of shit Orson Welles would say, and I'm not sure I fully comprehend everything he's trying to say I mean, there. I think it's very straightforward. Audiences can do without theater. Actors cannot. And the theater only exists insofar as it has an audience, otherwise it's just people talking to a room. The audience has to be enticed, has to be made. The He, he has this line earlier as well, which is, True, when we do chestnuts like the bells or Spartacus, we aren't speaking poetry, but we are trying to make it. After all, that's our profession, one in which nothing is re absolutely required except the actor. And of course, he only needs an audience. And so, the large part of the point here is I think that the audience is where the actual effect occurs. You act to the audience. You try to impress them in some way. You try to change the way they're seeing things. You, or, you know, as he even goes on to uh, paraphrase a, um, I believe a section from Shakespeare again, Peace out our imperfections with your mind. Think, when we speak of whaleboats, whales, and oceans, that you see them. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our stage, jumping o'er time, turning the accomplishments of many years into an hourglass. And that's, I believe, I think that may also be Lear, but I don't remember where the peace, peace out our imperfections. Uh, it's actually the uh, the prologue of uh, Henry V. Uh, right, right, when it's talking about the war, the fact that there's not going to be cavalry charges on stage yeah and and i think uh yeah that's kind of i think that's like a very famous and like yes. discussed passage yeah about no no i knew it was like, famous i just didn't remember which play it was from yeah I, I think i literally actually heard um them talking about that in one of the episodes of game studies study buddies i've been cool. listening to recently cool because michael is like a like a early modern theater sure, sure. guy anyway uh, um, anyways the um they also mention some examples of plays where they've done things like, you know, we did a pretty good ocean in the escape scene in Monte Cristo, and the governor's reply is, I don't know. This is more like one of the Greek pieces. There are bound to be places where we'll have to leave it to the words and the imagination. And obviously in Moby Dick rehearsed, not the hypothetical Moby Dick performed that does not <laughs> exist, everything is purely words, purely abstracted like 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 a Greek piece, but even less so, even more intensely verbal and novelistic in a certain sense. Yeah, it's it's like a Greek piece, but we're not even gonna have, like I mean, the chorus or the masks or the uh, yeah the costuming. Like in cla in classical, if you you know in like classical classical Greek theater, they would have actors playing multiple roles, but they'd have them change out their masks for that. And yep. I think you know in. Uh, 19th century or 20th century or 21st century productions of those plays people have different approaches to that um but the degree of like 
confusion of when people are changing roles and playing different characters that would that the stage directions of Moby Dick rehearsed instruct you to produce is uh, more than I think most productions of Greek uh, tragedies would sure, sure. induce. Yeah, and I think that the overall effect is very much one in which the question has been raised and discussed for a number of angles, can Moby Dick be the- be done in a theater? Can you bring that whale to life purely through the actors, their acting, their lines. And if you can do it in a novel, which I think we can just take for granted that Orson Welles believes you can, because he considers Moby Dick one of the uh, greatest novels written in English in the United States. He says as much in the introduction to his radio play, and his actions don't make that seem like, you know, he's purely talking it up, given his repeated attempts to adapt it. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that Orson Welles considers Moby Dick to be a a classic. Yes. So he has to believe that Moby Dick's words can create this effect. It's just, can they create this effect in a theater, on stage, when you acted in that way? And so I think that's sort of where Moby Dick rehearsed is both a trial run and a discussion of that question. Yeah. Um, And something I think is, is fascinating, speaking of the way that Moby Dick rehearsed turns Melville's novel language into theater language Mm -hmm. is that most of the Melville quotations and a large chunk of this play is just text from Melville that's been, you know, as in the radio play, uh, cut perhaps, but like it, it's basically Melville's words. Um, in the script, as the cover of our script says, it's been made into blank verse, which Mm -hmm. is to say that essentially line breaks have been added yes um but you know blank verse is poetry that does not like follow a like regular um sort of like rhythmic pattern i guess is that Mm -hmm. what is that like a good definition of blank verse Uh, i i guess so it's it's blank verse does not have a particular rhyme scheme does not have a particular um yeah i'm forgetting the, the term oh actually okay i was wrong Blank verse is, uh, does have meter. Blank oh, verse okay. is usually iambic pentameter lines, but just without rhymes. So, oh, okay. So wait, it's... actually, has he turned Melville into iambic pentameter? I mean, what is with it a that lot so of... draws me now to put down for a whaling voyage? Uh, he has cut up Melville's words and maybe adapted them a little bit to make them not iambic pentameter, but to make them, I guess rhythmic in the way that blank verse is. Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is that there's a lot of speeches in Moby Dick that are written to be spoken, as or at least written in a way that someone could speak them, and that means that they have some degree of, if not necessarily iams, they have some degree of meter, they have some degree of flow. Yes, and I, I think... Uh, I think drawing attention to that is one of the points of this script. Yes, yes. Um, and, 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 and like... That does make me really want to, this is a bigger, pro- this would be like a, an, an academic project, would be fascinating to look at how regular is the meter of the blank verse in this script, and to what extent is are Melville's exact words edited to make yeah. meter happen. But not to say, I think you're right, that a lot of Melville is metrical to some degree, Um and, you know, we haven't, like, again, this would be, like, a project of close reading that I think is a little bit beyond this podcast, but um, I've certainly got the sense when we've read some of those speeches, yeah. especially the ones that are present, 
Something we haven't even mentioned yet. There's parts of Moby Dick the novel that presents themselves as drama, yes. as, as poetry, as, as... As stage direction, even. Yeah, and, and so I, I wouldn't be surprised. I think I've gotten the subjective sense when I've read some of those passages, um, like, you know, the quarter deck or things like that, that there, that Melville is doing a little bit of, uh, you know, purposeful metrical structure. Um, you know, Melville's not doing blank verse, but... Maybe he is a little bit trying to incorporate some verse into his prose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hard really to say without, again, as I said, doing some like close reading, marking up the meter on Melville's lines. But um, even just looking at some sections where Wells has rendered events in Moby Dick into narration for Ishmael, when it's his words only, like, for example, on page 45 here, you have Ishmael describing a whole section of the book in brief. Months passed, and under easy sail, the ivory Pequod swept across four separate cruising grounds. One silent night, a silvery jet was seen, far in advance of the white bubbles at the bow. Lit by the moon, it looked celestial, some plumed and glittering god uprising from the sea. And I was kind of emphasizing the iams there, but it's much more regular than the speeches that are directly, um directly adapted from larger chunks of Melville. Yes, no, you're right. That bit that you just read is definitely just like, that is blank verse. Yes. That, that is iambic pentameter. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that's a that's a fascinating element of this. Yeah, so it's, and I think that, you know, Lear is invoked, and Lear is uh, sort of assigned as the comparison point within uh, text, and Shakespeare in general, and so I think this is in many ways a, Shakespearean pastiche that Orson Welles is doing with the uh, text of Moby Dick. Yeah, I, I guess I guess most of Shakespeare is blank verse. Yes, yeah. that is that um, is where I know it from. Is yeah, from, and uh, and uh, yeah, I think that college Shakespeare class. You know, Moby Dick. Or, I was going to say Moby Dick is very interested in Shakespeare, which is true, I guess. But what I meant to yeah. say is that Orson <laughs> Welles is very oh, interested yes. in Shakespeare. Like he did a lot of Shakespeare. Um, and he clearly, like, clearly one of the sort of hats that he wore or saw himself as wearing was, like, Shakespearean tragedian. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. Tragedian? I don't know. Um, I'm always mispronouncing words. Yeah. Um, so, in any case, that's the that's the metafictional frame of Moby Dick Rehearsed, that this is a trial run of a play that takes uh, Moby Dick and makes it into a kind of equivalent to Lear. And it's very expressly an equivalent to Lear. And the governor is the driving force of this, although the young actor is uh, accused by a number of the actors who are a little bit less than thrilled with the idea of this Moby Dick adaptation of having talked the governor into it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely. you definitely get the sense that uh, this idea of, like, what if we turned Moby Dick into a stage play? Is this young actor's kind of, like, clever little literary idea? Yeah, but I think that really it's uh, strongly implied to be the governor's actual brainchild, given that he's Orson Welles, who, as we know, repeatedly tried to make Moby Dick. Yeah, that's 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 certainly possible. I. It's hard to say, really. Yes. Um, like, the vibes that I got were that what had happened was that uh, the young actor was like, I've had this cool idea. What if we did Moby Dick? And uh, the governor was like, 
yeah, sure, I'm fine with that. Let's see if it works. <laughs> Entirely like, possible. He's clearly spearheading it in a certain sense. Yes. Um, but I don't get the sense... In particular, the, the feeling that I get from the way that the, the governor's interaction with this is portrayed is that as long as he's trying out this concept of a Moby Dick play, he's going to go for it and do everything he can to make it work. But he doesn't seem invested in it or invested in the idea that it can be done mm. it feels like the young actor is like no guys this can work here's why it is actually like a great concept and the governor is like well we won't know that until we try it out so let's just go yeah it's it's entirely possible i i think that the governor has a certain amount of passion for this uh as a as an attempt no yeah i think he's he's very into it clearly i just think that um well, part of this is also influenced by, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page about yeah. the attempts to film this, and the way that people talk about Orson Welles's, uh sort of filming of this production is very interesting to me in light of the kind of character sure, that sure. the governor has. Because it sounds like, you know, as we've said, there's footage of this, uh, the original cast of the play, and that footage is lost. Um, but it kind of sounds like what happened was that Wells was like, let's see if filming this is any good. Yes. And he, he filmed, and he was like, this isn't any good. Yeah, no, he, <laughs> um, it is definitely the case that everything I see about it is he just cut off on the basis of, this is not working. But what I'm saying is that I think that the young actor is sort of idealistically going, of course it can work. The theater is infinitely powerful. It can do anything. And the, you know, the cynical actor is like, the theater, theater can do whatever can sell. And the governor who sits between these is saying... The theater can do many things if the audience is interested in doing it. And he's deeply invested in the theater, but he doesn't have the pure idealism of it's just a question of the actors. It's just a question of the script. It's just a question of the sort of the thing being put forward, but also it's a question of this reaction or response. But he also credits the audience with a lot more than the cynical actor is willing to. Yes. Um, I do want to just read these uh, sort of quotations sure, about sure. how Wells approached this. Uh, so this is from... Uh... A biography, quoting something Wells said, We shot for three days, he recalls, and it was obvious it wasn't going to be any good, so we stopped. There was no film made at all. We only did one and a half scenes. I said, let's not go on and waste our money because it's not going to be any good. Yes. And, and then the biographer also quotes a friend of Wells, uh, Wolf Mankiewicz, uh, the biographer Barbara Leeming, uh, quotes his friend, Wolf Mankiewicz, who said, Orson's attitude is a very pragmatic one. He thinks until you get on the set with the actors and lights and the rest of it, you don't know whether it's going to work or not. And he simply reserves the right as an artist to sort of drop it if it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and I think that the the what's going on in the play is that is is the the um, the testing out. Yeah. The governor is in the process of like trying it and doing it to see if it works or not. Yeah. And the interesting thing about this is that we don't actually see the governor's conclusion about whether this play should be yes, produced. Yes, to, to skip to the end. And there are other things to say about the actual adaptation, but we'll cover the metafiction first, I guess. To skip to the end, it ends with, you know, it was the Rachel that in her search after her missing children only found another orphan. Ishmael closes the prompt book. After a moment, some of the other actors move out of the darkness to center stage, picking up their overcoats and putting them on. Ahab goes to the stage manager's table, but he is Ahab no longer, and as he retrieves his wide-brimmed hat and lights a cigar, he is, once more, every inch the governor. The others have started out via the stage door. The young actor rises and looks at the old actor manager. The governor. You can take down the curtain. He turns and walks away. After a moment, the curtain falls. 
Yeah, so there is this moment of, like, the Ishmael young actor being like, so? Yeah, does it work? (laughs) Can Moby Dick be performed in a theater? And there is no comment. There's just, we're done for today. And I think that I read that as, to some extent, a combination of a statement of failure and a statement of success. Because I think that on one hand, I do think the implication is this cannot be performed in full. We can't make this happen on stage. But on the other hand, I think the fact that this is a play that Orson Welles put on means that he believes that the thing itself, the thing we're holding, is valuable and meaningful, that it was worth doing in that respect, not as a film. Yeah, like, it, it is, it's certainly the case that Orson Welles did not, like, start rehearsing this play. At, and with, then drop it. And then drop it. He, he produced the play. Yeah, and um, it went on to Broadway as well. So I, I think that, like, yeah, and, and I think there's, like, there's a certain kind of obvious implication of you can uh, you can take down the curtain is kind of a statement of finality, and so there's yes. a certain statement there of, I mean, like... it's finality. It's also the end of the play. There is no onwards to the performance. That is where it ends. Yes, and, and so, like, I think you could kind of take it uh, symbolically as the governor saying this is it, we're not doing anymore, we're not going to rehearse this again. Yeah. But I don't think, ultimately, I do think it's ambiguous, and I think that's cool. Yeah, no, I think the ambiguity is cool. I think that the, on some level, the complexity of, the question is an open one, whether Moby Dick has been communicated, but at the same time, the commentary on the theatrical possibilities of Moby Dick has been completed, has been made, and has been, I think, implicitly successful and i think that's very interesting because so much of moby dick is interested in speakability greatest things are often most unmentionable or in this case least theatrical yes and so there's this sense in which and i think this is a through line through all of the moby dick stuff we see coming from orson wells the whole orson wales thing Mm -hmm. i'm not going to stop saying that uh is that it is kind of circling around the idea of the speakability, the depictability of the whale. And I think there has to be a certain level of dissatisfaction with, uh, say, the 1956 Moby Dick, with the existing depictions of Moby Dick, because if Orson Welles was fully convinced by the 1956 version of the play, uh, version of the movie, sorry, then a lot of this sort of metafictional consideration of it would be less important yeah less less vital and i don't think that it lacks that energy in this yeah i do think uh so this he wrote this play before the film oh right right yes but he then went on to have more moby dick projects yes moby dick 1971 yeah absolutely also i guess i don't know for sure the the film came out in 1956 the play was staged in 1955. I don't mm, know whether... Which starts production. Yeah, I don't know whether, like, Orson Welles was ever in rehearsals for the film at the same time as he was rehearsing or producing or writing this play. Mm. There may well have been some overlap there. I, I really don't know. It's definitely the case that the kind of text that is taken from the novel that shows up in the play is very different from the kind that shows up in the film. And I yeah. would... I do love the idea of him producing his counter Moby Dick all about its undepictability while also, you know, being a minor but memorable part in the big film adventure story Moby Dick. Yeah, like certainly one thing that's true about the 1956 film is that they they put the storm and the whale 
on the screen. Right on st- yeah. They, they showed those things. Yep, yep. Um, and, and I think, you know... Um, <sighs> There's also some really wonderful... Um, wonderful just uh stage directions and elements in this play that i do want to just say so i think there's a lot here to recommend it beyond just the thought experiment um at least for reading it such as music a very low timpani roll more a disturbance of the air than an outright sound yes first of all i'm just imagining handing that stage direction to like i don't know my high school uh friends who were in the theater would be like okay can i or like i was in the band i was not actually right, in the yes. theater stuff so we but we occasionally did like music for things and I'm just imagining uh, the guy who was the per- who was like the best percussionist in our uh, high school band being like, I'm not sure what to do with this. <laughs> yes, um, yeah. It. I unfortunately I don't think that this script is one that we can share with our listeners all that easily because as I said, mm. we just got a copy of it through a university library. Yes. Um, we don't have like a digital copy of it that we could just no give we definitely to people. don't. Um. I'm sorry sure, about but that. that but... That's one of the reasons I felt so uh, inclined to go through all these little things and discuss these various things that happen. Because unlike when we were reading Moby Dick the novel, it's not something where the text is readily available to everyone else. So sort of talking about some of its bright points and some of the things it's doing more in depth and on that level, I think is useful. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think that we should feel obligated to only ever talk about things that we can give people an easy link to but you Um, want people to be able to access them yeah and i guess i at the very least i wanted to make sure people were aware that they're not going to be able to just google moby dick rehearsed script and find it (sighs) anyways moby dick rehearsed does have you know just a lot going on as i mentioned i think earlier it's clipped the uh quarter deck speech not entirely but removes the lower level and the uh strike through the mask lines but keeps uh you know he tasks me mr starbuck tasks and heaps me um i think ahab beware of ahab got moved earlier in the play as well which is something that's true in the movie oh yeah yeah because ahab beware of ahab in the Quite novel late. is that's like it's when Starbuck is considering mutiny, which is almost yes. the very end. Yeah, but but this play moves it to the quarterdeck, is that yes, right? Yes, and yeah. so does, um, or to Ahab's confrontation coming out of the quarterdeck with uh, Starbuck. Right. And his, you know, uh, quiet, personal, you know, uh, use of the, um, it tasks and heaps me, you know, uh, be the white whale agent or be he principal, I'll wreak that hate upon him, all that. And then... Coming out of that, or as part of that, Starbucks says, Ahab, beware of Ahab, rather than, you know, rather than saying, you are driving us to mutiny, he's saying, you are going upon a self-destructive uh, vendetta. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I Since you've pointed it out, I definitely agree that uh, Strike Through the Mask is like a, a very important Ahab line, and it's interesting that wells consistently cuts it yes um i also think that i think of that sentiment or or that sort of philosophical idea as also being expressed in be the white whale agent or be he principal yeah which i think is one reason why the cut of that line didn't stand out to me as much Mm -hmm. but i agree with you that on some level like if we want to talk about the implicit gnosticism or just in general the the sense of uh, Moby Dick as representing some existence outside yeah. the world. And I think we can straightforwardly say that in this version, that's not the case because of some of the narration that happens during the final chase. 
Go on. Uh, specifically, um, Ishmael explicitly says about uh, about um, Moby Dick. Uh, he calls it uh, uh, a dumb brute. He says that, uh, you know, starting from its dying cha- uh, trance, sensing the shadow of the nearing ship, uh, and all these, there's these various descriptions of Moby Dick's actions that refuses to give it the agency, to give the white whale that agency that is so central to every depiction of the whale in the book. So to be clear, what you're talking about are, uh, this is not stage direction. No, these no, no, These are no, lines that but are spoken Ishmael... by the Ishmael narrator figure. Yes. Um... I just think that's important because... Yes, that is fair. Um, well, not because, like, if those are lines that are in the script that the company is putting on, then that is the version of the narrative that, you know, the young actor perhaps has written, right? I think I, that's mm-hmm. something that I think is very likely. I think the young actor is probably the one who adapted the script. Sure. Um, uh, so, and, and also is the version that the uh, governor is, you know, considering producing. So, yes, this... 19th century theater company is putting on a version of Moby Dick that explicitly presents Moby Dick as just a whale. Yes. Um, However, I do think it's interesting to ask whether Moby Dick rehearsed the play by Orson Welles is saying that Moby Dick is just a whale or whether it's saying Moby Dick as being just a whale is something that this theater company is doing. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I don't think that's an answerable question. No, I mean, I I think, you know, you could maybe tie this into the whole idea of like is Moby Dick producible as a stage play yeah maybe one thing that's being implied here is that somehow for it to be a stage play you have to make Moby Dick not you can't do the same thing yeah like certainly one thing that is true is that you cannot have an actor play Moby Dick yes and I will say the the thing I was specifically thinking of is when Ishmael takes things about the Sphinx elements from the Sphinx uh, speech about the silence of the whale uh, and his discussions of the anatomy. He says, The bird has voice, though, and the fear of this dumb brood is chained up and enchanted in him. The sight is pitiful. So he literally takes the sort of pity of previous whale hunts in the book, previous lowerings in the book, that have a certain pity or um, sympathy for the whale that is never shown towards Moby Dick specifically and is moved it onto Moby Dick because I think there's only one lowering in this adaptation it's also very interesting because like that reflection in the sphinx on like this this head cannot speak yes i mean obviously whales cannot speak but it's also to a dead yes head so it is to an entity that whether or not it had any agency while it's alive has has been destroyed yes um and and so yes like you're totally right that sense of like this entity may have had some knowledge at some point, but now it cannot speak of that, is being applied to a living, acting, malevolent Moby Dick. Or or a, a living, acting Moby Dick in the moments when, in the novel, Moby Dick is most portrayed as malevolent and yes. intelligent. Yes. The play is... Yeah, in the way Saying that Saying a dumb brute that cannot speak, and therefore there's something pitiable about its flight. Yes. Um. Yeah, it, all whales are in fact compounded in Moby Dick in this play, whereas in the novel, Moby Dick's uniqueness is stressed. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, it's really hard to say what Wells' relationship to that adaptational yeah, yeah. choice is. Um, that's certainly, I like, 
it's certainly not something I feel like I can make any statements about in the 1971 film clips, just because yeah, there's so yeah. little there. We'll um, get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another element that gets cut is during the, is Ahab Ahab? Is it I or God that lifts this arm? Uh, you know, this, how does this brain think thoughts unless Wait, God Wait, what do you does... mean it's cut? It's right there. No, within that, what's cut is the line, who's to, who's to damnation when the judge is dragged to the bar? Who's uh, to do? The, yes. the theodicy, the explicit sort of challenge of, if I don't get to make my choices, how can I be blamed? Uh, is completely removed. Instead, it's purely about the motivation, about the character's own struggling with himself. God is involved, but is not specifically drawn in. Who's to doom is such a good line. Uh, again, these are things I care about a lot, and it's not a problem that Wells cares about them less, but that's why these uh, cuts, these small changes, stand out so much to me. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You're totally right. Yeah. Like, theological questions are really not mm. foregrounded in this adaptation now i should say there's some truly fantastic lines that he does keep in and adapts quite well i think uh for example um the section where uh ahab lifts up to the clearness of the moor and his splintered helmet of a brow with eyes like coals that's some fantastic verbiage that gets turned into ishmael's uh you know narration here and gets done very well i think Based on the appearance of that line as well in the 71 clips we've seen, it's clear Wells liked that, you know, phrase and image of, like, the, uh, you know, the noble but terrible Ahab with his, you know, um, splintered helmet of a brow, his eyes like coals, his, effectively his, his visage, his, well, his very actable performance. Yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe one of the things that's being played with in, in this, uh, in this play and in the 1971 film is the question of what the visual images of Moby Dick are mm -hmm. that could be represented. Like, I think it's really yeah, interesting yeah. that, um, it's really interesting that at no point is Wells at all interested in any of this in actually trying to take, like, there is a lot of detailed imagery in Moby Dick that you can imagine yeah, making yeah. a picture of, right? Yes. Like, you can imagine depicting uh the these sea scenes yes um however wells doesn't do that he doesn't do that in this play he doesn't do it in the 1971 yeah, it film. sounds like we're just sort of orbiting towards the 71 so do we I, I, I kind of feel like we've done this yeah yeah no, and I, I want to talk about the film now yeah but... yeah no no i think that's a good idea i just want to i'm trying to think if there's anything last we want to touch on in Moby Dick rehearsed. I think we've covered the metafictional angle that's sort of the, the driving force within it. A number of the adaptations are a lot of fun. I think that the... It would be really cool to see this, you know, performed because I do think that the interaction between the characters of the actors and the characters of the characters would be uh, interesting. Now I will say one element when I talk about like the visual depiction of Moby Dick, and this is something that I think... I don't know to what extent Wells was thinking about this as part of the sort of visual production ability of mm -hmm. Moby Dick, but um, the play does have, you know, this is supposed, I think the way that this play is presented, certainly the way that it was cast, yes. they are meant to believe that all of these actors are white. Yes, 100%. Um, and several of the characters are not, because it's Moby Dick. Yes. Um, and there, there's even a specific moment where the governor says, well, uh, 
you know, young actress. There's no male parts. Uh, sorry, there's no female parts. There's only male parts. But uh, we do need someone to play Pip, and we don't have an actor more suited to that, so you're going to do that. Yes, and I think there's definitely a sense that, that like, because Pip is young, like yes. a young boy, he can be played by a woman, so that's, that's interesting on its own. Um, but, yeah, like, there is... And I think, you know, this is something that theater has a weird relationship with the question yes. of who can plausibly present characters of what race um you know uh orson wells played othello yeah yeah <laughs> just putting that out on the table yeah. where we can see it um <sighs> and yeah like there it and and it you know the the, the script talks about the race of the racialized characters. Yeah, it though, talks I will about say, Pip as a little black boy. I don't think... Mm, okay, Dagoo is definitely played by a white actor in this depiction. And Dagoo actually has lines, whereas I think Queequeg and maybe Tashtego? Uh, Queequeg and Tashtego definitely have like oh, at least okay. one line each. Yeah, but they've, they have like one line. They're not separate. There's not a separated out actor who plays them consistently. They're just, I guess, members of the company. Yeah, yeah, and like, you know... This, this, obviously this play, as produced, must have avoided the thing that film adaptations of Moby Dick so frequently do, which is to say actual, you know, black face, brown face, etc. But that's because it's being this, like, pared down rehearsal production, right? So, of course, we're not going to make up the young actress as a black boy because... We're not doing makeup on anyone. Yeah. But I don't think we have a sense of whether they would do that in the final production of this theoretical 19th century production of Moby Dick. Yeah. Um, like, there, there's so much going on in the depiction of a little black boy playing a tambourine on stage in America. In the, yeah. in the 19th century. In any time, honestly. In any time. And, and, like, this play is because it... This play is opening those questions for me, but it doesn't feel to me like wells is really thinking about those no things. i think they i think those appear only for wells in questions of like casting fidelity yeah. like what you can do with your particular stage you know company not any larger structural questions there because he's much more interested in questions of what can be done with the play what can be done with moby dick as a text and so on and this is too bad because i have to say that when it comes to the question of performability on stage and also just like visual depictability the question of like the racialized appearance of the characters is something yeah. i think about a lot and something that feels to me kind of un undepictable even though actually mm. clearly the, clearly it has often been depicted but like i think you and i've talked about what would it require for like a modern film or play or any yeah, sort of live yeah. action production to have a queequeg in it how could you have that character exist yeah, visually I, in a way that isn't incredibly racist yeah and my answer to that is i don't think i'm qualified to make that judgment in the end yeah there's no, like I, thoughts about it but i don't think they're really of much value they're they're speculation and only speculation yeah i do not know anything about um you know how costuming. that would have to be done <laughs> so i i am not like an, yeah. i i'm not somebody who has the background to really say ah here's a way you could do costuming for some sort of moby dick stage play that would both effectively communicate the things we need to know about queequeg as a character 
and like not kind of uh, paper over the racism of our source material, but also would not be itself like a, a really racist and upsetting thing to put on the stage in the first place. I, I don't know how to do that. Yeah, um, I... That, that is, for me, if I were to think about the idea that Moby Dick is unperformable, that is really something that would stick out to me. But that is yeah, not something that, that sticks a... out for Wells. Yeah. Basically, um. yes. Uh, but regardless, uh, and, you know, recognizing that this, this play is doing... There's more stuff. There's more, like, editing of how Moby Dick is presented. And I'm sure we could just keep digging through it. But I yeah, think we've covered most be, of the important things. Yeah, we're not going to be able to discuss every little detail of, of no. the script. Um, it's a, it's a full two-act play. There's a, People spend years and reams of paper talking about sure, the details sure, sure. of two-act plays. Um, so let's move on. Yes, okay. So there's the Moby Dick film that Orson Welles started to make. Um, film's a weird word for it, frankly. I mean, it is a film. It it's, is on film. So he, during uh, during filming of a different project, basically it sounds like just during like extra time when he wasn't making uh, The Other Side of the Wind, but he still had like his camera crew around, Orson Welles made some some recordings of uh it seems like ev- all that we have is him reading or performing passages from Moby Dick but he's like he's got a book in front of him he's holding it on, on he's holding camera. it but he also visibly has it memorized like he's not yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he's not referring to it constantly but the the effect like but that's often how it's done when you have someone who's supposed to be you know reading a thing on stage obviously they're going to be looking at you and emoting yes and and he uh yeah, so he's he's reading from Moby Dick, um, and and the visual depiction is basically just his, you know, like head and shoulders and a little bit of his hands holding the book, performing these passages against like a a blue background with um, the his light on light his is face. being reflected off water onto his face. Yeah, the way that light is playing on his face looks like light reflected off water. You, you would be doing that with water, like they do. They, you know that. Uh, I am not aware of any other way to create that effect. Fair enough. I don't know anything about film. In the film. 70s especially. I don't know anything about film lighting. I just wouldn't have assumed. Um, okay. Uh, but but I, I believe you if you say that's how it would have like, been Like, it looks exactly like someone standing near a swimming pool, basically. I mean, yeah, it does. Well, and also, that's like, not... Like, it's, it's richer than that, because he's got lighting. But... Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, it's not just uh, it's not just that lighting effect. There's also the fact that, like, half of his face is in shadow. Yeah. And it's also... Half his face is in shadow for some of it, and then I think there's also parts of these clips where he's actually like a total silhouette. Um, so it's not a single consistent lighting yeah. pattern the entire time. But yeah, this this water lighting effect is definitely happening yeah. and important. And he's just reading sections from Moby Dick, some of which are obviously a little bit shortened or clipped or edited, similar to Moby Dick rehearsed. But there's no, there's nothing else. Yeah, so so I should talk a little bit, I think, about like how we actually have these clips, given sure, sure. that Orson Welles just filmed these things of himself reading Moby Dick and then didn't do more with those. Yes. Um, and uh, there, so so this footage was basically um, like recovered uh, after his death um, by Oya Kodar, who was his like long time 
uh, romantic partner and collaborator. Um, she's, she's like very prominent in F for fake. Um, anyway, she, uh, you know, he left all of his unfinished recordings to her <laughs> and she worked with, um, uh, she worked with another director and, you know, a whole film crew, um, to make a documentary, uh, called Orson Welles, The One Man Band. We've mentioned that earlier. Right. And, uh, I watched that whole documentary. It's very interesting. Um, and it contains some of these clips of Moby Dick, um, that she, like, my sense is that, like, there, at least the way they depict it in the documentary, it seems like there was just, like, a, a garage full of, like, film reels that he just accumulated <sighs> And she went through it and found stuff and was like, oh, yeah, I remember that time when, like, I came home and he was making recordings of Moby Dick, which was just not something he had had planned at all. He just kind of started doing it. Um, (sighs) And uh, so, yeah, there's these few clips in the documentary. More of this film or more of these Moby Dick clips that might have someday become a film exists in the world um kodar you know recovered more footage than she put in the documentary um and it has been given to the munich film museum who edited uh this stuff together into a 22 minute film that i guess is probably i would assume it is all of the recoverable footage of Moby Dick (laughs) that Wells made and they've just put it all together in some way um and that uh is something that they've shown at film festivals but it doesn't exist like as a recording anywhere except at the Munich Film Museum and they do not have a digital version so I did actually email them uh asking whether they had a digital version or whether there would be any way that it was possible for Ben and me to uh watch this 22 version 22 minute version um but yeah you know what they said is we we don't show it digitally they don't distribute a digital version yeah and and so you know it's just i i get the sense that if we could have made it to munich (laughs) they probably would have screened it for us um fat chance though yeah no i mean yeah what i said in my initial email to the museum was uh Unfortunately, we live in the United States and are not able to travel to Munich for our research at this time. Accurate. Yes, I think that's a totally (laughs) accurate sentence. Anyways, so do you want to talk about what's in it? Yes, sure. Let us talk about uh, what we've been able to see of Moby Dick 1971. Which, by the way, you, I believe all of the clips of Moby Dick that are in the documentary can be found on YouTube. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... So, yeah. With with worse, uh, worse. It, yeah, pretty bad quality. We we watched. Uh, One man band is on the Criterion channel. Uh, so if you subscribe to that, uh, you can watch it. Um, and you know I think it's very interesting and probably worth watching. But I um, watched a little. Um, <laughs> you know to prepare for this, but the um the thing that really stands out to me is first of all a number of the clips we see are sections that are in both or at least one of the radio play and moby dick rehearsed yes uh so there is a consistent very ahab centric uh through line even to moby dick 1971 which is it's purely verbal it's like the visual element is seeing his facial expression seeing him speak in this particular context but there's no attempt to 
depict the events of Moby Dick or he's not moving around or well there's a tiny little bit where he's uh there's he does one of the he does the moment where Ahab has returned from I want to say the first day of the chase Mm, yeah his uh and, and his ivory leg has been cracked or broken off and he like is kind of stumbling up out of the and he you know the line of like before you see me break, you'll hear me crack. Oh, he yeah. does that speech, and there is a little bit of it where he's like bent down, and then he reaches up as though he's standing up unsteadily. Mm. So there is a tiny, tiny bit of uh, physical act. Yeah, visual depiction of the action. Um, but it is really minimal. Yes. Um, like, certainly, we're not seeing Orson Welles. Uh, we're not even actually seeing him stand up because it's just like his shoulders up. Yeah, and I don't think he even really has like costuming. He's wearing no. very nondescript. Uh, I'm trying to remember what exactly he's I actually wearing. I barely remember it. I think it's basically just like a suit or like a jacket. Yeah, I want to just look at it right now because I do think the question of what he's wearing is interesting. Specifically, I'm curious whether he's wearing a dark overcoat. Yeah, okay. Uh, so... While you're looking that up, I just want to mention that a number of the speeches that get uh, discussed, or not discussed, get portrayed, get spoken, get get speeched in um, in Moby Dick 1971, uh, they're very intense personal Ahab moments. Uh, before before I break, you'll hear me. Or before I uh, break, you'll hear me crack. And also, Ahab's soul's a centipede that moves upon a hundred legs. Um, you've also got, uh, I believe, the moment of Ahab lifting his, you know, shattered brow and the coals for eyes is also in there. There's a very strong sense of Ahab's personality. In fact, frankly, I'm very surprised that amid the uh, impersonal personified, a personality stands here uh, doesn't show up in anything that we've... Uh, that we've seen from Orson Welles, because that would seem to speak to it, but it's so involved with the weird theology that I can see why he would go for other elements of it. Um, And in particular, there's uh, a line that we actually have two uh, takes on in the clips uh, used in the documentary, uh, because he he says, cut, no, 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 going back, doing that again, where it's the line where Ahab uh, dismisses omens, um, you know, that if the gods mean to speak to us, they'll speak to us straight, more or less. And he also has a line that, you know, you you two are all of humanity, and Ahab stands alone upon this peopled earth. You know, the idea that Ahab is singular, one in literally millions, and is aware of it, knows his own uh, intense uniqueness. And I think that's really interesting in the context of Orson Welles, a, if anyone can be said to be a personality, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, I, I think the, uh, when, when he talks about, like, uh, like, Ahab's, like, furrowed brow, like, his own furrowed brow is quite visible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and by the way, I did manage to, like, get myself to one of the clips, and he's wearing just a totally indistinct black garment. Like, I can't even tell if it's a suit jacket. Yeah, um, it's... It's nondescript garb. Yeah, I do think that, you know, uh, it's probably some kind of black overcoat. So, yeah. Um, so, it, which, you know, in the context of Moby Dick rehearsed was just meant to be the generic thing they're all wearing. It's yes. not a specific costume, specific person. So, I think that's more or less a through line. But, yeah, I think that there's evidence in uh, 1971's Moby Dick, uh, what we have of it, what we have accessible of it, 
that more or less builds on the sort of through lines we've been seeing of, first of all, undepictability. This is pure verbal depiction, pure acting just without any kind of prop or sets or even action. It's all voice and face and body language. Yeah. Um, I mean, I do think that's a depiction. Like, I mean, it, it is. This but is it's... a vis- This film has a visual element, and there's lots of choices in that visual element oh, that sure. we've been talking about. But it's fully abstracted from an attempt to directly depict any of the action of Moby Dick. It's fully abstracted in the way that uh, Moby Dick rehearsed is somewhat abstracted, and there's literally a book present as he's doing it. He's not trying to hide that out of frame. He's very clearly giving us this book. This is. Moby Dick as novel, but translated through Orson Welles' acting. Yes. No, that's definitely true. And I think that that also ties into the idea of, I mean, frankly, the kind of, uh, what's the term? When someone, identification, the identification with Ahab that I think is present in a lot of what uh, Orson Welles does with Moby Dick. The, obviously, the cheap and easy thing to say here is, oh, Moby Dick was Orson Welles' white whale. <laughs> but, like, we've resisted actually saying that too much. Yeah, because also, I think maybe Don Quixote was actually his white whale. I think that sometimes you have multiple white whales. Well, yeah. And it, I think... Yes, it is true, and this is something that is, like, a point that One Man Band makes very clearly, that Welles had just, like, a ton of projects that he wanted to pursue, but for many different reasons was not yeah. able to, or was was not able to finish, or was not able to, like, screen. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, like, Moby Dick actually seems to be one of those projects where his uh, sort of fight to get it to happen was not actually that uh, intense, um, because it seems to be more <laughs> of a matter of, like, he tried making this thing to see how it would go, and then he didn't continue it. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference is a lot of his uh, projects, as far as I'm aware, I'm not a Wells scholar, they fell apart because they were difficult to do in some kind of sense of, you know, money, time, labor, having the right kind of crew for it, logistics. Whereas it really seems like his Moby Dick projects are running up against a a philosophical boundary in a certain sense. Again, it's articulated through Moby Dick rehearsed, right? And it's articulated in the fact that he came back to it with uh, his 1971 filmings, but didn't really do anything with them. They're clearly expressing some kind of idea, some kind of, you know, effort to recapitulate or rework Moby Dick into something that he can do this, you know, or he just really liked being Ahab and wanted to take a minute to be Ahab. But I think that the, um... I think that the combination of his clear love for the novel and his interaction with it in these metafictional ways paints a really interesting picture. Yeah, yeah. And again, I don't mean to say, oh, this is the secret totality of Orson Welles. As far as I can tell, yeah, this was a a repeated side project, an interest of his that, you know, among his many interests, it is one that did not come to fruition. I don't mean to say that it is his white whale. But I do think that there are certain things expressed about his ideas about depictability about the novel and the theater and you know in some sense a certain question of uh a vision of the dynamic between the visionary and the audience in his case between ahab and those around him yeah yeah um i think one thing one thing that was in one man band that i think is very interesting is um at one of those q a's that i mentioned someone asked yeah. some kind of question about like a mass audience 
Um, and I think the kind of implication of the question is like, well, of course you make these like weird art films that a mass audience <laughs> is not interested in. And he says something like, I'm in search of a mass audience. Like he, he is interested in trying to make things that people respond to. And so I, that's an interesting thing in Moby Dick rehearsed, right? This idea of like, whoever heard of an unemployed audience, like actors yeah. need the audience. The audience doesn't need actors. But then at the same time, he it seems to me that in these Moby Dick adaptations, something Wells wants to do or is interested in exploring the possibility of is communicating Moby Dick to an audience in a way that that audience will find compelling and will yeah. be able to understand. And I mean... You th- the metaphor that comes to my mind, the obvious thing is he wants his one cogged cir- one circle to fit all their cogged wheels or like a match to light all their heaps of gunpowder. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think that like uh, the question of like, is it possible for the ideas of Moby Dick and maybe even, you know, I don't want to put too much weight on this, but I think you can definitely say, is it possible for Wells to communicate his Wellsian ideas? to yeah. a mass audience yeah no i i think that one of the one interesting thing that comes out of this even if we you know don't go so far as to say oh wells must have identified strongly with ahab which i think there's a decent case that he sees things in ahab that he really enjoys depicting and that he really enjoys speaking whether that means he's emotionally invested in it, i'd have to look a lot more into wellsian bi- biography but i do think there's a very clear angle to the idea of Ahab as orator, Ahab as actor, Ahab as even director of the drama of the Peckwater of Moby Dick, can Ahab, through his speeches, do what he is depicted doing in the book, holding his magnet to Starbuck's brain or firing the crew with his, you know, vital energies? And I think one element of Ahab is that he never can. He can never quite get someone else to fully capture his vision. He can get them enthused and riled up with his, you know, rabble-rousing speeches, but he can never actually have a true interlocutor. And this is the the tragedy of Ahab and Starbuck, as we've discussed, is this lack of a true communication until at the very end there's a spark of it. And even then, Starbuck cannot fully uh, embrace Ahab or understand Ahab. This idea of Ahab as the genius whose ideas desperately need to find a grounding in the people around him and cannot and ultimately this drives him on to destruction yeah yeah i mean i do think i do think that um one thing that does seem to me to be clear is that wells would very much like his films to be watched and understood but he's also it seems like he's kind of comfortable to some extent with that not being the case. Yeah, he's going to do the best art he can, and he hopes that he can make that accessible to people, but he's not going to... He's not going to completely bodlerize Moby Dick like the Sea Beast does. Although, something we didn't bring up somehow that I really meant to is Moby Dick Rehearsed does change the ending in one really big way. As well as making Moby Dick a dumb brute, Moby Dick dies with Ahab. In Moby oh, Dick Rehearsed. yeah! Yeah, like the fatal iron. Moby Dick goes down. He's in his death throes when he destroys the Pequod. And part of this is about, you know, the change in how Moby Dick is depicted. But very explicitly, 
uh, Ahab even manages to, like, get up to Moby Dick and do that, like, slow... Again, this thing keeps showing up in adaptations. Ahab gets to be right next to Moby Dick, slowly lancing in it, taking a depiction of Stubb killing a whale earlier and transplanting it onto Ahab, slowly lancing the whale to death. So there is one major, almost Baudelarization, though Ahab still, and the ship still die, it's not the same as the Sea Beast, there is a major change for the more, uh, I guess, the, the less purely tragic and the less metaphysically horrendous version of the ending, where Ahab's vengeance kills him and the more or less hapless Moby Dick. Yeah, no, that's that's true. That is a that is a change, and um, yeah, I, I I think that you know, um, the sorry to like derail no, things. No, you're right. It, it, I, I'm just trying to collect the thought I was trying to make mm-hmm. about basically. Um, I get the sense that for Wells, the way that Ahab cannot fully communicate his nature and his thoughts mm-hmm. to other people is is somehow noble and yeah. beautiful i mean i think it is in the novel as well well like... yes but but uh, i think it's interesting for example that the uh that the like as you mentioned the little lower layer the pasteboard masks yeah. is elided and i think that kind of makes ahab's ultimate inability to actually communicate with starbuck Mm -hmm. something that is i guess what i want to say is that i think in moby dick rehearsed and the moby dick radio play ahab's inability to communicate with starbuck is just kind of inevitable and the actual substance of what Ahab is trying to say about God and about the nature of reality Mm -hmm. and whether Starbuck is capable of hearing that, these are not really things that are discussed. Mm. It almost in some sense doesn't matter. It's It's about the emotional connection. And it's just like, of course Ahab is not going to be able to communicate with Starbuck. That is just kind of taken as a a prerequisite. Um, There is no real sense of... uh, following through Ahab's arguments and seeing how Starbuck responds to them. and there, There's no theological dialogue between the two as there is in the novel. Yes, and to me that means that there is sort of no possibility of Ahab achieving a sense of communication. Mm. Um, Ahab's, like, sort of personal spirit and his thoughts are his, just... His tragedy and his nobility. Are just always contained in Ahab in these adaptations and that's fine that's what wells is interested in yeah and he's i think that he's interested in the attempt to communicate it but as mentioned greatest things are ever the most unmentionable yeah um and i think that i think that seems to be something that draws uh that draws um wells's attention despite the fact that he ne- we never see him actually produce the Lee Shore. He never directly adapts that, you know, moment of Bulkington, but he does incorporate bits of it elsewhere. So we know he's thinking about it. We know that's a section that he's aware of for its uh, vibrant language, if nothing else. Yeah, I think what I'm trying to say is that for me, a lot of Moby Dick is the novel, and I think this is maybe something that I would actually kind of locate in Ishmael as a character and as a narrator. Moby Dick is a novel 
often seems to be straining against the limits of communicability. Yeah. When, when Ishmael says, wonderfulest things are ever the unmentionable, I don't think he is, I mean, he is in some sense stating a grand truth. Wonderfulest, right, yeah, yeah. But I think he's also saying something that he's like, oh, what a shame that it's like this. Yeah, yeah. And I think the whiteness of the whale is a chapter where you can mm. really feel Ishmael doing his utmost to communicate something that is incommunicable. Whereas I think that Wells just kind of accepts that some things are uncommunicable, indepictable, and I think kind of takes that as a premise. I don't mean to, to challenge you. I do. I see that in sort of reverse order, which is that it seems to me that for Wells, he believes that these things are communicable, but it's a question of of rhetoric and style, not a question of the nature of the, the thing itself. Mm. He is all about trying to, you know, trying to get the audience to see the whale where there is none, trying to communicate these ideas in such a way that you can make, fit this into theater. And it's a question of craft, of your crew, mm. of your style, of your equipment, of your writing. And he's willing to say, and I didn't manage it, but I tried. Whereas yeah. I think that because Ishmael is focused on the idea, on the the concept that he is why he thinks it's incommunicable, is that it's inherent to the thing and to language, Ishmael is running up against the walls of speech Whereas Wells is seeing the walls of speech and going, I think I can push that back 10 feet. I think yeah. I can build, you know, build out the, the edifice of art further. I think it's just a question of time, money, and effort. Whereas for Ishmael, and I think for Melville, it is, there is no degree of, um, of art and technique. And you can see this in the fact that Moby Dick's a fantastic novel, and yet it's about Ishmael not being able to tell his story. That there are these limits, and he wants to talk about those as limits, whereas I think for Wells, the point of the limit is to be pushing against it and to be uh, extending his craft. Yeah. And I think that difference between craft and idea is a huge one here. Yes, that's definitely true. That That is, uh, I think, the, the distinction that uh, Moby Dick Rehearsed makes between uh, the young actor and the governor, where yeah. the young actor is like, Arguing, this must be possible. Arguing for the conceptual possibility of communicating Moby Dick, and the governor is practically trying it out. Yeah. Um. And and yeah, I think you know that's a that's a. I do think it's interesting to think about. You know, there's this idea that uh, Wells worked on his Moby Dick film and then gave up on it because he thought it quote unquote wasn't working. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we have a sense of what that actually means for him yeah. internally, yeah. right? And I think like for example, one thing that it isn't working could totally mean is I can't actually afford to spend this time on this project right mm. now. I have to be making this other film that I'm doing and like uh, something that's emphasized a lot in one man band is how much um, Wells was like using one project to support another. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so there might be a sense of like, well, this film can't support itself so the, the does it work may have something to do with, like, will an audience accept this? Yeah. Um, and an interesting thing, I think, about Moby Dick the novel is that I think the question of will this work be commercially successful, will the thing I have written communicate mm -hmm. with people to a degree that it will sell, I think that is important to Melville in his life. But yeah, I don't think that that 
shaped the production of Moby Dick particularly. Well, or or if it did, it's because of the way that making a novel is so different mm, once from it's making created, a film. It just goes out into the world, yeah. Yeah, and and like um making a novel, I mean it, it costs money and that you've got to support yourself while you're writing it. And something I don't know about and I want us to go into Melville's letters and Melville's life sure, at some sure, point, sure. and I'm sure we'll find out how Melville was supporting himself while he was writing Moby Dick. But when you're making a film, you've got to pay everyone who's making the film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, like, um, I think there's a, a way in which, um, like, the question of the commercial viability of a novel is something that is answered once the novel is published. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question of the commercial viability of a film is a question that is sort of constantly weighing on it in its production. Yeah, that's that's entirely possible, and I think that's true. But I do think we are we are running up against not the limits of communicability, but the limits of our knowledge in yeah. dealing with this. We are now... We have been speculating about uh, Wells's motives and what goes into that, and I think we have some strong cases for particular thematic meanings of Moby Dick in Wells's hand. But I think, ultimately, we do have to admit that we cannot finally give a full account of Orson Welles. We just don't have all of the Moby Dick versions that Orson Welles produced. Yeah, and, and we have no idea what he might have conceptually hoped the 1971 film yeah, to eventually not. be. And, you know, maybe he didn't have that kind of a plan. Um, yeah, maybe he was just doing it because he likes Ahab. Yeah. Because we know he likes Ahab. Like, I think you can probably say that he had some kind of, like... Idea for it? Some, some kind of concept that wasn't completed, but... Um, you know, I, he clearly didn't go into all of his product projects with a totally, uh, secure plan all the time. Um, or not mm-hmm. secure, but like... No, 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 I, I know what you mean. We've discussed this earlier in the podcast. Yeah, so, so yeah, in, on some level we'll just never know, and yep. that information may never have existed. Yep. <sighs> but I do really like the reading of Wells and Ahab as, uh as actors, as rhetoricians, as people trying to communicate things to others, and the distinction between the ideal and the practical way of thinking about that. Yeah. So I'm really glad that we, uh, we've discussed this, and I've, I've had a lot of fun uh, looking at various mostly incomplete or, like, conceptually about incompleteness <laughs> Moby Dick things related to Orson Welles. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely been a, a fascinating little investigation um i'm glad we tracked all this stuff down yep well uh what tune is it we sing to men a dead whale or a stove boat